Hi, it's Joe from News with a brand new episode of Jack's Viral Podcast. Boris Johnson said this week that hibernation was coming to an end as he announced an easing of lockdown. The two-metre rule is going to be cut to one metre very soon. Cinemas, museums and galleries were also given the green light to reopen. But two museums in Oxford have told us they won't be reopening on July the 4th. The Ashmolean will have a number of COVID-19 safety measures in place, including a cap on numbers and sanitisation points. And Theresa Nicholson, head of marketing at the museum, spoke to our reporter, Emma. We will open when we can do so safely. What we're aiming to do is get this in place at some point in August. And um, what we will do is put out announcements to the press and we'll also put things on our website so people can know as soon as we can confirm when we are able to open. What measures have you got in place? Well, one of the key things that's a massive change for the Ashmolean is in order to go to the Ashmolean, you will have to book a ticket. As you know, we're free to go in, so people can normally just walk in and out. We can't do that initially. People will have to book a ticket. They can do it online, and we will have a managed queue going into the museum. People will be socially distanced once they're inside. All our staff are briefed so that they can tell people um, how to have a safe and happy visit. We will also be putting in specific measures around routes and um, ensuring that lots of people don't come at the same time. So we're capping the capacity as well. So the other thing we'll be doing is having sanitation points and lots of things just to make sure everyone knows that they can have a safe and happy visit when they come to the Ashmolean and come back and see all their old favourites. Do you think it will still have the same feel once you do reopen? It will be different. I think life will be different for all of us initially. Hopefully at some point we'll get to the stage where there is no social distancing. We can put on all the events and activities we used to do, but for the time being, it will be different, but we hope we can offer someone the opportunity, everyone the opportunity to come back and see the works of art, see the wonderful historical objects, and just enjoy their visit. But obviously, if you've got to stand a metre apart, you can't do the museum in quite the way you could before. At this stage, the restaurant won't be open. We're hoping to have some kind of cafe facility, takeaway facility. But again, that depends very much on what regulations change in between now and when we open. The Pitt Rivers is another of our local museums that's planning to wait until August to get back to business. Andrew McClellan is head of public engagement there. With the Pitt Rivers, you know, there's all sorts of issues for us over spaces. We're a we're a small museum, we have narrow spaces, social distancing is going to be difficult, we've got lots of surfaces that people might touch, we don't know whether people are going to even want to come back into the museum initially, it's certainly made easier now that we're probably looking at um, social distancing of one metre, That's going to, that, that will definitely up the numbers that we're able to do. The Pit Rivers isn't on its own, we're, we're part of a group of museums connected to universities, so I think the first museum to reopen is likely to be the Ashmolean and we'll kind of see what happens there and what we learn from that and then we will we will follow on from that. We're not exactly sure of what date we're going to reopen, but we will start getting things in place. And it's, it's going to take us a while, you know, there's at least three weeks work to to prepare the museum for opening once we've decided exactly what the um what the um what we have to put in place to be able to do that.
Do you think that the museum will still have the same feel with these new measures in place? Well, that's something that's something we've been talking about a lot, Emma, and it's, you know, it feels really important that it is on some level. You know, we could put in really draconian rules over people coming in, but what we don't want is people to come to the Pitt Rivers having heard what an amazing creative space it is and all the issues and thoughts and politics that are going on around the Pitt Rivers Museum at the moment and then leave and say, oh, my God, that was a terrible experience. That was worse than going to the supermarket because then, then we really would have failed. So in some ways, we'd rather take it a bit slower to make sure that people don't have a negative experience. We want people to come out going, that was amazing. I really learned something. I'm going to go away and recommend that to my friends to come and do. That, that's, that's what we need to happen out of this. In the meantime, then, before you do reopen, we have any other events planned virtually and that kind of thing? For the last couple of months, we've been kind of treading water with most of our staff on furlough. Uh, but now everyone's beginning to come back. And we're looking at the future. So we're really looking at how we can engage digitally with people and also how we can we do a lot of projects where we work um, in a really kind of focused way with small numbers. And there's an, there's an opportunity to increase that kind of work. So we're looking at the moment about creating. Um, we're not quite sure when it's going to start, but hopefully possibly July hopefully August, of doing kind of weekly um, online talks and tours and discussions around the issues that affect the pit rivers at the moment. And some of those are really, you know, are really in the forefront of everyone's minds. Things like Black Lives Matter and Roads Must Fall campaign that's going on in Oxford. The pit rivers is involved in those conversations. We're, we're also the target of some of those conversations because we're not always seen as an innocent party in this. And those, those discussions need to happen. And through Pit Rivers digitally could be a really good way of beginning to engage with all of with all of those ideas and, and contribute to what's a really important moment of change in our society at the moment. Now this week we also caught up with pub manager Kerry Osborne, who runs the Red Lion in Yarnton. She says she's planning to keep the two metre social distancing rule, despite Boris, of course, saying it can go down to one. And she told me why. You obviously have all that worry of am I going to survive throughout um, being closed. The brewery Hawthorne Leisure have been very, uh, very good with us um, and they've tailor-made for each pub what the needs will be. Obviously our next worry now is what will happen when we, when we open. What will the level of custom be uh, and everything else, all the bits we need to put in place. Exactly. We actually did a little poll on Twitter this week to say, what are your thoughts? Are you going to be sort of rushing out to the pub on the 4th? And actually, the majority of people said that they wouldn't necessarily be rushing there, you know, on day one. I think some people maybe will take a bit more of a cautious approach, wait till things die down a bit. But what are you kind of anticipating in that sense in terms of how many people you're going to get in? I'm I'm very lucky. I have an excellent support from the community here. I think um, a lot of my regulars will want to return to the pub on the initial days that we open. So on, hopefully the weather is lovely. So on July the 4th, there's plenty of space, plenty of seating, and people can return to the pub. Um, after that, yeah, as you say, I would feel that people will calm it down a bit. They'll remember what's, in, what's going on. Obviously, we've got a financial crisis, so they may well decide that they, they need to stay home a lot more often. Um, and obviously with the social distancing and things in place, that's limiting the amount of people we can actually have here at any one time anyway. 
And I think different pubs are looking at different ways of implementing social distancing and keeping people apart. I know there's obviously talk about it being table service only. Some people may be even using apps for people to order. But what are you planning for your pub? We are hoping to maintain the pub experience as much as we can. So rather than reducing our um, social distancing measure to the one metre plus, because that would mean that we have to incorporate screens or PPE with customers and things, we'd rather keep it at the two metres, have slightly less people in, but be able to keep that experience of being able to come to the bar to order your drink at a two metre distance and then move away from the bar so there will be no standing at the bar. We have a one-way system in place to avoid that face-to-face passing contact. Um, We will be doing some table service sort of inside, um, and then obviously we'll have sanitizer points as you come in, Um, obviously reminders to people that you need to wash your hands frequently, and this sort of thing will all be there in order to protect the customer and our staff. There's obviously a lot of new rules for people to get used to once they go back into pubs. Do you think it will still be an enjoyable experience? Um, I think if you overdo it to a certain extent, this is the problem. I think if if you have screens and things there, it's going to make it feel a lot different. We're doing the best that we can to try and maintain, as I say, that, that experience of being at the pub as much as possible. So people will have reminders and, as I say, one-way systems that will feel unusual to them. And, and you know, they'll get used to it, I would imagine, but they're still able to have a certain amount of contact through a two-metre distance with other people. So we're hoping it shouldn't feel too different, just a little bit strange, I would imagine. Yeah, and obviously Boris Johnson has warned that, you know, if if there is a second wave, there may have to also be further lockdowns. Do you think your business in the pub could survive if that happened again? Um, it would be very, very difficult. The first lockdown, we've survived marvellous. You know, we can get through this. If they have a second lockdown, we will need extra help again from the government. Um, otherwise, yet yeah, businesses will close. There's no, no doubt about it. As I say, when we will open, we'll be running at possibly 70% less customers but our increased costs would have gone up by about 50 percent so even being open it's going to be a struggle for us but if you shut us again as well without any further support um yeah i don't think businesses will survive the red lion is reopening on the 4th of july now we ran a poll on twitter this week at jack fm news and almost 63 percent of you said no thanks when we asked if you would be rushing back to the pub on the 4th And just 18% said they were planning to. Personally, I think I'm going to give it a few days to avoid a mad rush. But man, I cannot wait to have a nice cold glass of vino in a pub garden. Anyway, moving on now to an interview with Professor Matthias Holweg from Oxford Side Business School. Now, he's discovered that increasing the number of hospital beds in COVID-19 hotspots can increase the number of patient deaths. Here he is chatting to Emma. The key learning is that we should, you know, look at overwork or overload of, of intensive care units much, much earlier rather than, you know, filling them up to 100% or even extending their capacity greatly. Um, that's probably been one of the mistakes we've made in, in this first wave. And I understand that you're suggesting using online registers as well. How is that something that's already running or would that need to be set up? So we have one example in Germany uh, where this is already running and essentially hospitals by law are required to submit their ICU uh, uh, film levels, their capacity levels every day. And uh, the system allows uh, for a national monitoring of where capacity is 
And if a hospital uh, feels that they are stretched or they are no longer able to cope, they can call up the, the emergency medical services uh, command and control center to, to request transfers to regions um, that have less, uh, less of a load. And that, of course, then takes away the pressure quite, quite quickly. And uh, that's working in Germany, and we feel that um, uh, that's one of the key reasons why uh, in the German out- outbreak we've seen a far lower mortality as, for example, in comparison to Italy, uh, where the uh, regions like Lombardy that have seen these huge surges and the, the highest loads on the hospitals have seen such huge mortality, whereas the rest of the country actually didn't. And that's, of course, uh, you know, what we're arguing, well, transfer patients much earlier um, and therefore allow all hospitals to work at a reasonable level rather than overworking some and letting some run sort of near idle. Do you think that the UK could benefit from implementing something like that? Well, we, we, we're all learning, right? So this, uh, you know, we've, we've, uh, we are now sort of seeing the back end of the first wave and we should now take stock and learn and look for best practice. And in our view, the, the, the German system, which is just the website that everyone emails their data to every, every morning, um, is a very simple and easy uh, thing to do in this digital day and age. Um, and it's very low cost too. And uh, so, that, yeah, I mean, there's many best practices that are emanating, such as in terms of treatment, when to, you know, when to intubate and ventilate patients. And one best practice we haven't looked at is how to manage hospital capacity better as a, you know, a surge develops. We've talked lots in the last few months about looking after your mental health during the coronavirus outbreak, but it's important to do that as lockdown eases as well. That's what 27-year-old Martha from Bicester told me when we spoke about how she's been coping and about the support she's had from a local charity called Nays House. But my routine has changed. I would go and visit Nays House on a Tuesday and Thursday. We couldn't do that but they were still in touch. So they would contact me daily, go, how are you feeling today? Do you need to talk? They even sent out care packages just to get you through the day. So there was um, some incense sticks in there, some lavender, shower gel, like a Kit Kat, that sort of thing, just to get you through the day. It has been hard. It's been very, very hard. Luckily, I've been working because I'm also a support worker. I even struggle to go to the supermarket because I don't do directions. And it's just been a nightmare just following directions on the floor on how you can stand or how how far away from a person you can be. And it's, you know, being stuck behind these four walls and not being able to just go and walk somewhere or you know I haven't when it when they said oh you can go out for an hour's walk per day I was like you can't do that when you've got mental health you know it's not like walking a dog where you know you can go out like you know you need to go out but I found when I was having one of my moments where I was just I went off the walls I was like, I've already been out today, I can't go out. And it felt very, like I was living in a, like, prison in a way. How are you feeling now that, obviously, each week we are able to do a little bit more? So how has that impacted on your mental health since? Are things improving? 
Yes, definitely, because obviously Nay's house is back open where we can do face-to-face. Obviously, we have hand, hand sanitizer and stand two metres away and things like that. We have shields and we have masks and everything. Um, but it felt like it lifted, like a brick off my shoulders had lifted. I was like, I'm free now, I can go out. And it just having that routine back. If you could sort of give anyone that is maybe feeling a bit anxious and nervous about going out again now that lockdown's easing, if you could give them some tips or suggest, you know, how people could look after their mental health, what would you say? I would say you need to go out, even if it's just for a 10-minute walk. If you are anxious going out into town or just start little steps at a time, because that's what I did. I went out for a 10-minute walk, and I knew my anxiety was getting high, so I just walked home. And then the next day, I'll go a little bit longer, just so you get used to being outside and around other people. Yeah, I, just little steps at a time. Nayshouse.co.uk is where you need to go if you think you could do with a little bit of support right now. Earlier this week, we also spoke to Oxford nurse Tina Wright. Now, Tina packed up all her stuff and she moved into a tent in the garden during the coronavirus pandemic. It's because her teenage son was at risk of being seriously ill if he contracted it. She still wanted to carry on caring for her patients, but she also, of course, wanted to protect her family. We considered a few options. We considered me moving out the house. Um, because Oxford House, did offer, they do offer um, accommodation uh, for their staff. Um, or we considered me moving into the dining room downstairs, and that would be my bedroom. But I just felt like I was still, I was still putting Josh at risk because COVID, there was, it was so prevalent at that point. It was all brand new. Um, and we decided to borrow my mother-in-law's trailer tent and put it in the garden which actually I could still be at home I could still have contact with the family I could still see them and Josh could sit outside with me um, which was nice a couple of nights they camped out with me which was lovely they slept in their tent and I had mine I just wanted to be at home and just to still be able to maintain family contact with them can you explain to us what this tent actually looks like like how big is it what kind of things did you have inside or was it very basic and just like your quilts and stuff like that so I was quite lucky the trailer tent it, it was very big um, I had my room to sleep in um, it had a, a cooker which I didn't use but we had ele- it had electric cook up so um, the cables running into the house so I could still use my kettle um, the radio I could still use my laptop out there for remote working um, I had my gesture drawers out there with um, my clothes and my shoes and books and a desk and a chair so it was it was it was home from home it was it was cold at night it was warm during the day but it was fine I enjoyed it I got to read lots of books which was nice and you mentioned your son Josh so was he the main reason that you decided to move out of the house to keep him safe yeah he was the only reason Josh has got a complex medical condition which meant that he's not at risk of catching it but if he was to to contract COVID, his body would really struggle with maintaining itself and he would need hospital treatment, which we didn't want. He would have to go into hospital on his own and it's a scary place, hospitals, as it is. So 
he was he is the only reason that we chose to do what we did. And has he been shielding them throughout? Yeah, he was from mid March. He stayed home from school and he didn't go back until a week ago, Monday. Nearly three months he was shielding and Paul stayed off with him through that whole time. Was it a worrying time for Josh? Like, How did he react to the pandemic? He was confused. He couldn't understand why mum couldn't give him a cuddle or I couldn't get him a drink or open his cereal bars or just the, like the basic things that you do as a parent. He was very confused. I don't think he quite understands what COVID is, although he knew that I couldn't give him a hug because of COVID. I don't know. He's just taken it in a stride. He's quite chilled, luckily. So, and he's he's uh, that's his favourite anyway. So, I'm sure I'm sure he was happy. <laughs> <laughs> I think the hardest part I found was to not be able to give him or his sister a hug, just to not be able to do like the normal mum things. And I really missed them. Um, even though they were just in the house and I could sit outside talking, it's, it was really difficult. And I felt guilty knowing that Paul was doing everything. And with Paul being in the military, I'm used to him being away. And it's me doing it all, so I know what the pressure's like. Now um, Paul's gone back to work, which he's enjoying. Josh has gone back to school, which he's loving. Um, our daughter's come home and we're kind of trying to get used to a new normal. We're all back under the same roof and where we should all be in, in the house. Yeah, we're just trying to find our new normal now. I think we're all trying to work out a new normal, aren't we? But amazing dedication there from Tina. Really lovely story. Moving on now to a story you may have heard in the news this week about the government putting up an extra £85 million to try and stop homeless people returning to the streets once lockdown is eased. Oxford City Council has got a cabinet member for housing the homeless. That's Mike Rowley. He says they're waiting to find out how they can access some of that cash. He also told us what they're doing to find more suitable housing, more sustainable housing for over 100 people who they had put up in hotels and student accommodation at the start of lockdown. We're not going to be kicking anybody out suddenly in two weeks' time. I'm pretty confident that we have... Uh, accommodation options for people to move to, thanks to the support from housing associations and also from the university, to whom I'm very grateful. Um, we are also seeking to, um, we are seeking funding from national government and we are bringing together the local authorities within Oxfordshire, uh, the district councils and the county, uh, to apply for that funding because obviously we are running on an emergency basis and while we're not going to stop suddenly on the 4th of July and kick people out on the streets. Nonetheless, it's not something that we can do uh, indefinitely. So we are looking for support to be able to find all of the people who are, who are in guest houses or temporary accommodation, permanent homes to move into. How well do you think the council has handled this aspect then during the pandemic, protecting the homeless? Well, I'm extremely grateful to our officers, who I think have I think have done spectacularly well. Um, I'm not I'm not bigging up myself here and saying we've done well. Our officers have done tremendous work. Um, they spotted uh, right at the big before the government um, started to talk about everybody in that it would be necessary to move people out of the communal homeless accommodation and into uh, into separate 
separate accommodations in in guest houses and other places around the city, and therefore we were a lot quicker off the mark than most local authorities. You can see that in the uh, in the statistics of um, uh, of people who were accommodated. Um, but um, as I said, there's fantastic work, and not just our officers, but also. Uh, social services, national health service, the voluntary sector, the many um, excellent uh, support accommodations for homeless people that are in Oxford. But as I said, we're running on, uh, we're currently running on an emergency basis. Um, we'd, in order to be able to profit from that work and help, help all of those people uh, permanently into get up get back on their own feet um we will need some some serious investment this pandemic has obviously shown that things can be done to help the homeless getting them all off the streets what would you say to someone who might be thinking why haven't you done something like this sooner well uh we're running on an emergency basis it's not something that we can uh, we can promise to do all the time or year after year because funding simply doesn't exist. Confronted with an emergency, we have um, we have done what had to be done, but it's not sustainable in the long term. In the long term, the only thing that's sustainable is getting uh, getting people into a permanent address of some kind with the support around them to make sure that they're able to stay there and don't lose their tenancy. Uh, and that's, that therefore is what we're, lo- what we're looking to do. It's, some, it's a, a case where hopefully this has brought, this has um, sharpened minds in, in national government to think about what needs to be done to end homelessness. Uh, uh, and some investment now will save a, a great deal of of time and resources, uh, and also a great deal of heartache for the people who who are threatened with homelessness um, over the fall, over the coming years. Local charity Homeless Oxfordshire told us it is working with the council to try and help accommodate some of those people, and it said it would continue to do all it can to minimise the risk of them returning back to the streets. Now, sticking with the problem of housing in Oxford, there is a warning that a lot of people will lose their homes come September when the ban on evictions in private rented properties is lifted. It was announced back in March as part of a package of measures to protect renters. The Oxford Tenants Union is worried. I spoke to Ines, who's one of the organisers. Since the pandemic hit, we've had huge amounts of people, much, much more people come onto our weekly meetings. Um, all of them are totally worried, sick, and are having having a lot more struggles with their rent accommodation. Hundreds and thousands of people are losing their jobs at the moment. The Office of National Statistics last week actually has quoted 600,000 people are going to lose their jobs in May as a result of businesses closing, um, mainly hospitality and retail, which are the most precarious precarious incomes. And a lot of most renters are in those really unsecure jobs and unsecure accommodation as a result. The eviction ban is ending in August. Thousands of people are going to be facing eviction when that comes to an end. So it's about trying to work out how to protect those renters. We've been working directly with Systems Advice Oxford um, and referring people to them as well as Shelter, who we've been working closely with, um, who can provide better support. But we've we've been providing more solidarity and support, um, so creating a network of renters where we can come and collectively organise around issues that everyone's facing together. A lot of people in Oxford 
living shared accommodation and we've been hearing lots of stories from people who have had their housemates have maybe moved back home or at the beginning of the pandemic um, moved in with partners or or had to leave the country Um, and the renters who are left have been left liable for the entire property's rent. Um, We've been providing support by we've got a pack of resources on our website to help people get in contact with their landlords and letting agencies to kind of negotiate those situations. Do you think that if there wasn't this ban on evictions, though, that there has been recently, do you think there would have been more people that had been kicked out of their homes, potentially even homeless at the moment? Oh, totally. Yeah, it's it's even so. Some of, some of our organisers work work in homelessness in the city, and even with the eviction ban in place, we've seen a huge spike in homelessness and, and people people in people being forced onto the streets. Um, come September, when the eviction ban is lifted we're preparing for like a lot of people losing their homes it's 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 a really terrible situation and it, this is it's it's a solution in one part in that it's protecting people at the moment but all it's doing really is kicking the can down the road because without having a cancellation of rent or having rent waivers throughout the pandemic to go along with the mortgage holidays um many renters are just building up huge amounts of rent rent debt um which they won't be able to pay off once once the ban is lifted and many of them will be served eviction notices. That's quite a scary thought for many. And like you said earlier, a lot of these people at the same time are facing uh, maybe losing their jobs and then to sort of maybe have the second hit of possibly facing eviction. I can't imagine that, you know, what people are going through. Yeah, it's a really scary situation. Um, and it's it's forcing lots of families, especially to to have to choose between, between feeding their families and paying rent. Um, and it's 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 hard to to work with um it's hard to have those conversations directly with landlords when a lot of a lot of people have letting agencies playing hardball in the middle um and we've been trying to facilitate those conversations with with renters and, and landlords directly to kind of ask them so boris johnson has asked them to show compassion but it's it's not what we've been seeing we've been having some people have had successes but it's it's hard to have those conversations with your landlord and, and ask them to to show compassion in these situations because it's it's really tough Ella. and just from the point of landlords showing compassion do you find that it is only the small minority that are trying to evict people from their properties at this time it's, it's really hard to say um i think a lot of people we've we've been hearing a mix of people who have been forced out um but i think a lot of people don't recognize these as, as evictions and a lot of it has come down to to kind of more verbal threats of like people being asked to leave their home, but but not formally serving the victim notice because they're not allowed, and and it's a really uncomfortable situation for many renters to be in because obviously they don't want to have uncomfortable uncomfortable relationships with their landlord, but if they've been asked to leave, and it's it's really it's, it takes a lot of courage to kind of stay in your home. Eviction ban is in place. People do not have to leave their homes during this time. The Oxford Tenants Union is hosting open meetings on Facebook every fortnight and is encouraging renters to head along and share their stories. Something a little different now, as we ran a story earlier this week with Cycling Without Age Oxfordshire. That is a charity and it's trying to raise money to buy three trishaws, which are sort of like bike taxis, so they can take elderly and vulnerable people out on a bike ride. Richard McKenzie is a trustee and told Emma a bit more about the project. People live a lot within our communities 
and face social isolation without even noticing it. You know, so many times we can get up, we can have our breakfast, we can get off to work and we can come back and we've really not had any time, whatever our age, to have just time to have a meaningful conversation. And the idea here is that people who even volunteer will see a benefit by just having a time, maybe an hour once a week or every couple of weeks, just to come and use the bike um, and to spend some time just chatting, just natting, nattering and just catching up. How big of an issue is social isolation in Oxfordshire, do you think? It's, it's huge. And, you know, it's one of the things which also contributes to um, dementia and mental health um, and even physical health as well. It is a massive problem and it sometimes when you're starting out and you're setting up something like this, it feels like a problem that can easily overwhelm you and, and swallow you up. But you just have to keep reminding yourself that we're going in the right direction. Yes, we're only starting with one bike, but um, we, we've got no upper upper limit so basically as a charity we, we want to get three bikes by this year but going forward um, we're hoping that it's going to be going into the many hundreds so that we can reach every corner of Oxfordshire so not just the, the city or the big towns we want to be in the villages and uh, you know and have volunteers who will be managing these bikes for us and for the charity going forward. What would you say to someone listening to this to encourage them to get behind your campaign? The elders within our society are one of our greatest assets. Um, you know, in their lives, they've gone through so much, so they have so much to teach us. And specifically in the times where we are now, people are locked away from their society, um, you know, because they're shielding and keeping themselves safe at the moment. So I think it's a great uh, project to get behind so that when it is the right time and when it is safe and we can bring people back out into their communities, that we can use just the humble bicycle. You know, Oxford being uh, a cycling city, it's a great place for this project to be launching. Um, just to be able to use the humble bicycle to, to, to meet these people's needs. Um, and yeah, and I think it is a really, really important um, project going forward. And I've got no doubt that it's going to be bringing thousands of smiles to local people, but not just that, just helping them with their mental health, helping them to connect with people within their communities. Bringing a smile with every mile is their motto. Quite like that one. It's a lovely idea, isn't it? I definitely could see my granddad being whizzed around in one of those trishaws. And you can see what they look like on our news pages as well and justgiving.com forward slash campaign forward slash CWA Oxfordshire is where you need to go if you'd like to donate. That's it from me and a nice little taster there for you of all our virusy news stories from the week. Not long now till we can all head out for a haircut and a nice cool pub garden pint. I'm sure you're counting down the days too. 